0: I'm going to tell you about an experience that I have from time to time or something I've struggled with pretty much throughout my life, and I'm going to see if it resonates with any of you. As I shared with you, you know, just keeping it real here, anger has been an issue for me for pretty much my whole life. But at the, it, it seems like it's a distinction from that, though, when I tell you the, the obvious truth to me, and that is that I'm not an angry person. Uh, I'm, by nature, a very happy person. I'm a very optimistic person. If you talk to the people that I work with, I'm even Pollyannish. Um, To me, life is beautiful, and life is bright, and so I I think about that as as someone who is really a happy, optimistic person. Why have I struggled with anger through the years? And the answer comes back like this, and and I don't know if this resonates with you, maybe it does with some of you. It's that somebody has pulled me into their angry world. It is an angry person who has pulled me into the dark world that they live in. And maybe some of you have experienced this in the past. I mean, you know, you're happy, you want the best, you're optimistic, you're positive, and yet there is, can I use the word, there's a jerk there who who just enjoys being an angry person, who enjoys doing damage, who enjoys pushing buttons, and somehow they drag you and me into their worlds. And the next thing we know, we're saying things that we can't believe that we would say because it's out of character for us. Maybe even doing something is out of character for us. And we get into at least emotional and maybe even a verbal duel with that person. And then we look back and we're ashamed of what we've done and we sort of carry the blemish in our lives of having done things and said things in a moment of anger that we wish we hadn't done. Um, I, we were pretty much cashless society, so I had to go round up a $10 bill uh, to get ready for this. But uh, uh, next time you look at a $10 bill, I want you to look at the guy who's, whose picture is there. Um, his, his name is Alexander Hamilton. And uh, Alexander Hamilton died in the most famous duel in American history. Alexander Hamilton had a hot temper, and when you know, rival politicians would say something about him that he didn't like, he, he wanted to go to the mattresses. He was ready to challenge them to a duel. Aaron Burr, who was vice president, had said something about him that he didn't like, so he got into a gun shooting match with the vice president. Not Dick Cheney. He's got his own gun issues, but th- this, this was Aaron Burr. And so uh, they went out there on a little you know level spot in New Jersey and uh, started shooting guns at each other. And when all the shooting was over, the guy on the $10 bill was dead, 47 years old, didn't even live to be 50, hot-tempered guy. This is Father's Day, and by the way, happy Father's Day to all of us who are fathers and grandfathers. But any of us fathers who have anger issues, one thing we need to really be cognizant of, and that is that we can pass our anger on to our kids, especially sons. You know how Alexander Hamilton's son died? In a duel, the same spot. And, and so today I want to talk to us about, about duels and how we get... How we get pulled into duels. Maybe some jerk gets the best of us. Some angry person who doesn't think twice about being angry. Maybe who lives in an angry environment somehow sucks you and me into their world and how we can keep from getting into those duels. I want to take us back to the Bible, to the book of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And there's so much in this chapter that I won't be able to get to today because our time is limited. But I just want to ask you for a personal favor for you and me sometime today, read 1 Samuel 25. If you've got notes out, just jot that text down. Read the whole chapter because it is chock full of great stuff. And when you read the whole chapter, you'll see some of the stuff that that I'm going to draw out in the next few minutes. You're going to see where it comes from. But let me just say for a moment before I get into the story, uh, there's something very special about the Bible. It is the Word of God. And and that is why at New Spring Church, we're not part of any denomination. We don't draw our authority from some group of men that sit in a musty room and make it up as they go along. We we draw our authority from God himself through the Bible, which is his word. One of the great things about the Bible is it's filled with stories. And the scriptures tell us in the book of 1 Corinthians that all these stories are there to help us process and understand life. So if you're a frequent person at New Spring, you know, I almost have a Bible story every week to tell you from God's Word because it helps us understand. And today, I have an awesome story. One more thing about the Bible before I move on. You know, God is awesome, and he doesn't sugarcoat the lives of the heroes and heroines of the Bible. He doesn't gloss over their failures. You know, if I'm writing a book about somebody I want to present as a hero, I'm, I'm likely to tell the best things about them and leave off the worst which is why whenever I get interested in a particular character and I want to read a biography, I'm never satisfied till I've read the biography of a protagonist, an antagonist, and somebody who I think is fairly balanced. When God tells the stories of his heroes and heroines in the Bible, he tells it like it is. And if he's talking about Abraham, he tells the dumb stuff that Abraham did. And when he talks about Elijah, he tells the dumb stuff that Elijah did. And I'm glad because I do dumb stuff. And it's good for me to hear that some of these great men and women of the past, they did dumb stuff too. And beyond that, when I read their stories, I learn. And that's what we're going to do today. I'm just going to walk you through a Bible story. And if you're like me, and if you've ever been pulled into an angry world by an angry person, got into a verbal or emotional duel, and said things and did things that you've ever regretted, today we're going to get an awesome lesson from God's Word about how to deal with anger. I got to set up the dominoes, if you don't mind. I need to tell you a story. It's going to take me a while to get there, so please bear with me. If I don't tell you the story, you won't know how all the pieces fit together when we get to chapter 25. It's all about the life of a man named David. And some of you may know a lot about David, or or maybe you know very little. Maybe all you know about David is that he, he fought a giant, Goliath. But you know, David is a big guy. In fact, when Jesus came into our world, he called himself the son of David. So he's a very important character, he's a very great hero. But when David started out, he didn't start out as a hero. In fact, nobody noticed David when he was a kid. How many of you, when you were growing up, it was like nobody noticed you? It was like you were transparent. People could just look right through you. People didn't maybe have expectations for you. You didn't get elected, you know, prime queen. You know, you didn't get elected, you know, to any kind of, you know, most likely to succeed thing. It's like you got most likely to be ignored when you you're in high school. But you knew inside of you, you knew inside of you that you had great gifts, even though other people couldn't see it. Well, that's how it was with David. He he was the youngest of eight sons. Now, today, you know, we're not all that concerned about birth order and all that kind of thing in our Western world, but in the Eastern world, in the time the Bible was written, if you're the eighth son, not much was expected of you. Remember last week, I talked to you about the the story of the prodigal son, and I said that the older son would, by the rights of primogenitor, he would have gotten two-thirds of the estate. The younger son would have gotten one-third of the estate. When you're eighth, you don't get nothing but hand-me-downs and leftovers. And nobody has any expectations for the eighth born in, in, in David's time but he was. He was the eighth son. Any of you the baby of your family? If you are, if you had older brothers and sisters, did you grow up the youngest? Did did certain jobs just sort of gravitate down to you that nobody else wanted to do? If you were David, that's how it happened. Uh, Jesse, his dad, had some sheep, and all his brothers were G.I. Joes. They were fighting men. They were soldiers, and they went off to fight wars and win medals and and get girls, but David, his back-watching sheep, that's his job. Nobody notices him. Nobody cares about him. People in Bethlehem barely even know that he's alive. But David has one fan. There's one person who watches David all the time. Now, David, you know, he's out there watching the sheep. Nobody's looking. You know, he's singing songs. He's twirling around out there in the wilderness. He's writing poems. And, I mean, it's like he's doing it and nobody's listening but the sheep. But there is somebody watching and listening to David who absolutely adores him. Lance is always leading our team, our worship team and leading us to worship for an audience of one. And, and you know, let me just tell you, please, when you come into New Spring Church, you know what an awesome worship experience we've had. This is the third time I've been through it and it got better every time. It's just awesome. Please never veg during a worship service. Because the Bible says God is watching and God is listening. And scripture says God lives inside the praises of his people. He inhabits his people's praises. You know, when you praise God, God shows up. Here's David, the eighth born out there, whirling around, singing songs, writing poems. Nobody cares about him. God is just sitting up in heaven saying, phew, that's my boy. (laughs) In fact, God said this about David. He's got the same kind of heart that I have. Well, in those days in Israel, they were being served by their first king, who was a real bum. His name was Saul. When Saul started out, you know, he was kind of humble, but then he got full of himself. And he started making it up as he went along, and he did something that many of us do, Saul obeyed God when he wanted to. When it was convenient to obey God, when people were watching, he obeyed God. When he didn't want to obey God, he didn't obey God. If he liked this rule, he did it. You know, he obeyed it. If he didn't like this rule, he didn't obey it. And finally, God had enough of it, and God said to Samuel, who was the prophet, the leading you know, leader and religious leader, spiritual leader in Israel, God said to Samuel, I, I'm, I'm through with this guy. I'm getting him out of here. I'm tired of having somebody who will not obey me, who will not listen to me. And God said getting out of here i'm calling me a guy in i got my eye on somebody and he's just like me and he's the next king one day god came to samuel and said samuel i want you to get your oil and i want you to go to bethlehem and i'm going to get you to anoint a king now if i'm been samuel i'd say well, wait a minute don't we already have a king isn't there a king already on the throne but samuel didn't test god he just got his oil and he went to bethlehem when he got there they did this big feast. It was a big, you know, food spread like sometimes churches have. We're going to have on on um, uh, on Watermark weekend in August. You know, they had food out there and they were getting ready and there was only one thing before they could eat the food they had to get the king anointed. And God said to Samuel, it's one of Jesse's boys. And so Samuel had Jesse call all of his sons in to stand before Samuel to see which one was going to be the king. And having seven sons who were older than David, and being sure that it probably would be the oldest, maybe the second oldest, Samuel said to David, "You don't need to." Go. Uh, Jesse said to David, "You don't need to go. Just stay out there with the sheep." Can you get this in your mind? Whole community there. Bethlehem is there. On oh, pins and needles. They're eating. You ever have? You ever go to church when when there's going to be dinner afterwards, and you smell the food wafting through there? They're smelling it. And so now the moment of, of, of destiny arrives, and Samuel gets his horn of oil, and he's going to anoint the new king. And so all these boys are standing. You know, all the sons of Jesse minus one are now standing before Saul. And up comes the oldest son, whose name is Eliab. He's tall. He's good looking. You know, he is a GI Joe. He's a soldier. And Samuel says, oh, this has got to be the one. He gets the oil up, and God says, nope, don't want him. Already got a dud like him. Don't want him. <laughs> well, the next son, I think his name was Shema. And so, you know, he's coming before samuel got he, Samuel's saying, "Well, sometimes God does pick the younger son, so maybe it's him, and he has the oil up." God said, "Nope, don't want him." Can you imagine how humorous this must have been? I mean, you're the next son; you're thinking, "Whoa, is it me?" He stands before Samuel. God says, "Up, oh, don't want him. Next." You know, number four, number five, number six, number seven. Now, as far as Samuel knows, he's got all the sons of Jesse here. Talk about embarrassing. You know, people are starting to wonder, is Samuel losing it? Is he getting old? You know, he's come down here with his horn of oil, and we actually have a king already, and and it's like he had seven boys up here. and, And so Samuel asked Jesse the $64 question. Got any more kids? Jesse said, yeah, we got one, but we don't expect much from him. He's out watching the sheep. Now, <laughs> what happened next must have happened very quickly because Samuel said, we don't eat until he shows up. <laughs> and so can you, here's this wonderful scene. Somebody rushes out there to the, to the sheepfold and gets David. And when David comes in, Samuel looks at him. And here is this teenage boy, been in the sun. He's tanned. You know, just this kid walks in. And God said, that's my boy. Pour the oil on his head. I'd like to tell I mean, you, you know, I, I, I'm, when I read these stories, I get carried away with it. As far as I, I can imagine, you know, it's like there's going to be harp music in heaven, and angels are going to swoop down and pick up the newly anointed boy, carry him to the throne, move Saul out of the way, set David on the throne. It doesn't happen that way. You know where David goes? Back to the sheep. He just has oily hair. <laughs> but cool stuff starts happening because God has empowered David. A bear comes out one day to attack the sheep. David rips him apart. A lion comes out. David does the same thing. But now you know, and most of us know the story. And you this is maybe what you know best about David, and, and it was where he came to fame because this is where he left the sheepfold and went on to stardom. Back in those days, the if, if if the soldiers were in, in camp and they were if they were in town, it was the responsibility of the families to feed the soldiers, not the government. And so families would send food to their boys in the service well here's all of david's brothers gi joes they're in the army they're soldiers they're earning med- you know medals and badges and all this kind of thing and 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 jesse comes to david and says i know you've had oil pointed on your head but as far as i'm concerned you're still a messenger boy you know how many of you have gotten a title you're making a big income you're the president you're the ceo but when you're around your mom and dad you're still a kid And Jesse said to David, take this food to your brothers, and David does. And when he gets down to the camp, something is going on. When David gets down there, he's expecting to see all these, you know, soldier guys that he looks up to. He's expecting to see them strutting their stuff, but instead of doing that, they're like hiding in their tents. Israelites in those days were fighting the Philistines, who were fierce fighting people. They were sea-dwelling people that lived on the coastline, rather. And the, the Philistine camp was over here, the Israelite camp was over here, and the Philistines had this huge guy nine feet tall, Goliath. He's like huge by NBA standards. And so just as David is getting there, Goliath is making his daily parade and he comes up to the camp of Israel. And here's what Goliath is saying. He's calling them names. He's insulting them. He's insulting Israel's God. And then he starts turning, trying to be Mr. Nice Guy. And he's saying, hey, listen, you know what? We don't need to go to war here because if we do, there's going to be a lot of death and blood and carnage. So instead of your army fighting our army, I'm the best man on our team. Find the best guy on your team. We'll go mano a mano. If your boy wins, the whole side wins. If I win, my whole side wins. Well, the problem is over in Israel's camp, there's nobody who wants a piece of this guy. And David shows up just as he's hearing all these taunts. You ever been embarrassed by a kid brother or kid sister? Like with your friends or something and your kid brother or kid sister comes and just says the dumbest thing? I mean, David's brothers are out there. I mean, they're, they're hanging with their, you know, and they're not doing anything, but they're listening to Goliath and just hoping he'll go away. And David comes in, strutting his stuff as a teenager, and he's saying, hey, why should that guy be allowed to talk to us that way? And his brothers start dissing David. They said, hey, you're just here to see the fight, which not much of a fight was going on. I don't know what they meant by that. But they're saying, you're just, you know, you're embarrassing us. But while they're while they're giving David a hard time, the word is wafting through the camp all the way to the tent of King Saul that there is a boy here who is willing to fight Goliath. Now, if I'm Saul, I'm figuring some raw bone, big, tall country kid who's been picking up cows and setting them down. I'm you know muscular and everything. If I'm Saul, I'm figuring some huge, gargantuan country kid has come out and he's ready to fight Saul, uh, fight Goliath. And so when Saul sees David, he's saying, "I don't think this is going to work. You're just a kid." And David tells him about the lion, about the bear. And Saul says, well, okay, because nobody else is ready to go out and fight. Saul said, here's the deal, though. You've got to wear my armor. Now, picture this. David is a teenager. Saul is seven foot tall. He's an NBA center. And so here's David. You know, he's got all this armor on him. He can't move. David said, I can't handle this stuff. I I haven't checked it out. But there is one thing David does know. He knows how to use a slingshot. He's practicing. He's watching sheep. He's out there flicking those rocks. Man, he can knock the left eye out of a gnat at 60 paces. I mean, he's just hes good with that. And he stops by the, by the brook, picks up five you know, bullet-like smooth stones, puts them in his bag. He's walking down. You know, here's Goliath coming toward David, David coming toward Goliath. And Goliath has heard that, yes, the Israelites are now finally sending out a contestant. And Goliath is probably expecting the same thing that Saul was expecting. But he looks out there, and there is a teenage boy coming to him. And it just... Really makes Goliath angry, and he's saying, "Who am I? Am I a dog? Are you, you disrespecting me? You send a kid out to find me, and that really gets him upset." And he starts screaming insults about God and about Israel and about David. And finally, he says to David, "I am going to feed you to the buzzards—well, vultures. But in Texas, we have buzzards." That's, <laughs> and I love David's speech. Instead of insulting Goliath, he says you know you come with a sword and a spear and i come to you in the name of the lord and while he was making that speech he was winding up boom You let it go hit goliath right in between the eyes and he went over like a tree and just to make sure that the you know the business had been completed david reached down and picked goliath's sword up and cut his head off that set off the cheer can you imagine philistines do we just see what we thought we saw And the Israelites, man, it's pep rally time. They're excited, and David is brought in, and he is the big man on campus. And he goes, I mean, he's like clicked and dragged from the sheepfold to becoming the top general in Israel. He becomes like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Israel. Just a kid, teenager. And God blesses David. And David is now leading out all the armies, and he's having success after success. He takes the army out. They win. It was on one of those days when David and his armies had had a great success, David was coming back into town. And in those days, if an army was successful, the women would line the sides of the streets because just in those days, you know, if an army lost, it could be brutal on women. And so when the army won, the women would line the streets and they'd sing songs to the soldiers who were coming back. Maybe some of us can remember similar scenes, you know, as our GIs liberated towns in Europe during World War II where the women would throw roses and sing songs as the soldiers came through. And to Saul, of course, you know, he's strutting his stuff. He's king. He's not really doing anything successfully in the war, but he's got David there. But Saul's glad that, that they've won, and so Saul is strutting up at the front of the line. And the women start singing, and Saul loves the song. It's a great song. The women are singing, Saul has slain thousands. He likes that tune. It's catchy. But he didn't like the second verse because now General David is coming through. And the women go into the second verse of the song, and they, say, they sing, David has killed 10,000s. And the moment Saul hears that, it's like jealousy grips his heart. And from that moment on, he hates David. And he will do everything he can to destroy him. And David has to run for his life you know, just a day before he had all the armies of Israel under his control. Now he doesn't have anybody. He's a hunted man. But there are neer do wells in the kingdom who sort of gravitate to David. The Bible says those who were in debt, those who were in trouble with the law, those who were kind of crazy, maybe had some mental health issues. I mean, it's like the Oakland Raiders. I mean, these are the guys that gravitate to David. That's his, that's his posse. Now, there wasn't much for those guys to do. back. You know, those are sort of like militias and stuff. There was nothing much for them to do. The only way they could keep food in their stomach was to do one particular thing, and hang with me because I'm now getting in the zip code of our story here. The one thing that militias like David's guys could do is they could protect ranchers when they had flocks or herds in the field. Those livestock, they were susceptible to, to, you know, raiders. They were susceptible to wild animals. David and his men basically would cordon off the property of one of these ranchers. And then when the time came for sharing or the time to sell the livestock, that leader of that band would go and and request that they might be compensated for what they did. That was normal. David wound up with his men guarding the ranch of a guy named Nabal. And you can read about him. If you have your Bibles in front of you here, you can see that early in chapter 25 that he's got a huge ranch He's got something like 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He is a rich man. And later in the chapter, we will read that David and his men cordoned off the property so that not one piece of livestock was lost. No one was harmed. Nabal's ranch foreman would say David's army was like a wall. Let me introduce you to Nabal's family. This is in verse 3. The man's name was Nabal. That may not mean a whole lot to us. But um, I was looking it up, and I, I was checking with a lexicon to find out who Nabal was. Now, a lexicon is not the little green guy in the Lucky Charms box, but a lexicon is like a dictionary of Hebrew or Greek words. So I was trying to find out what Nabal meant. The word Nabal, and this is the very first word in my lexicon that came up, and I'm telling the truth, Nabal means stupid, stupid. <laughs> now, how many times do you have to do stupid stuff before people are just calling you stupid? You remember Forrest Gump, stupid is the stupid does? Well, evidently, Nabal had done stupid things because that was his name. People called him stupid. Odd that he's a rich man. I mean, he owns this big ranch, but everybody calls him stupid. And later on, we will find out that he is stupid. But look at the next part. And his wife, Abigail. Now, the name Abigail means joy. Now, you know my curiosity. I'm looking at this, and I'm asking, how does stupid get married to joy? Some of you are saying, I don't know either. <laughs> but that's what, that's what happened. And, and, and in those days, marriages were arranged. So I, I'm guessing that long before Abigail had any choice in the matter, her parents arranged a marriage with Nabal's family, and stupid wound up married to Joy. Let's read the rest of the verse because it'll tell us what we've already learned. Abigail was a sensible and beautiful woman, but Nabal was crude and mean in all his dealings. Nabal was an nth degree jerk. He was, he was mean, he was crude, he had earned the name stupid. And he, he, the thing about Nabal was he was always trying to pull people into his world. Well, let's get to the story real quickly here. What happened was, it was a time of sharing, it was party time, Nabal was getting, you know, he was getting paid for, for the, you know, what, what his flocks were producing. And David sends a, a group of his men to go ask Nabal, for what is rightfully theirs and so david's being come to nabal and they said you know and and david's message is very polite you know please if you have anything that you can share with us would you please share with us anything that you have extra that's when nabal responded i want you to see i want you to read this with me and see how nabal responded he says in verse 10, who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young man. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their master. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered from my shears and give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where? Now, watch this. Nabal could have just said no. That would have been wrong because David had provided a service for his ranch. But Nabal could have just said, no, I'm not going to do it. But he didn't do that. He pushed buttons. How do you know what that's like to have somebody push your buttons? Maybe you have somebody who's in your world who knows how to push your buttons. This guy knew how to push David's buttons. Listen to what he said. First of all, he said, who who does the son of Jesse think he is? That was a reference to where David had come from. And then he distorted David's motives. He said lots of slaves run away from their masters. David wasn't a slave who ran away. He was a man who was running for his life. And then he got to worth. He said, why should I give my stuff to this band of outlaws? My guess is that many of us know what that's like to have somebody push our buttons in one of those areas. I've talked to many husbands and wives through the years who had a lot of conflict going on in their marriage. And I've had wives say to me, Mark, I was never an angry person until I got married. I was a really nice person. But my husband knows how to push my buttons. Mark, I I never was an angry guy when I was growing up. I was just really easygoing. But, I mean, now I'm angry because my wife knows how to push my buttons. I don't think we have any button pushers here today. But in case we do, could I just make a statement to you? When you push people's buttons, don't act like you're persecuted when people react. I know people who can push buttons and smile while they do it They what I call nasty nice, you know you know they 're working with you and they just oh, they come by and just say something you know push the buttons and then when they get called to account for it well i didn 't say anything let me, let me tell you, people who push buttons are angry people they 're filled with rage, even though it may not come out as rage, but they're filled with anger and hostility and resentment on the inside. And so it is that ugliness on the inside of them that makes them want to push your buttons. And Nabal did. He pushed David's buttons. Now let me ask you a question. Is it a smart thing to push people's buttons? No, it's not. And especially it wasn't smart for stupid to push David's buttons. This is a guy who had done business with a nine-foot-tall guy. This is a guy who had done business, you know, as a general of the army. If I'm Nabal, I'm not pushing this guy. If I'm not messing with anybody, I'm not messing with David. But he pushes David's buttons. Well, guess what happens? When David hears the response, he tells his men, put your swords on. We're going to go over to that man's house. And here's, see, now David is getting sucked into Nabal's angry world. David is saying, we're going to go over there, and we're going to kill every male member of that household. Did every male member of the household disrespect David? If you're, when you read this chapter, you'll see they liked David. They appreciated David. But David was on his way to get vengeance. He was on his way to slaughter every male member of that household. It is at that moment that we get to meet Abigail. Abigail, in this story, is the voice of reason. Remember, she's sensible and beautiful. And Abigail is so filled with Christ With God that when she comes out to talk to David, she is going to give him wonderful advice. And in the process, she's going to give you and me wonderful advice to keep us from being pulled into duels with angry people. So you kind of get this picture in your mind. Here's David and his men. They're headed over here to Nabal's house. They're going to kill all the male members of the house. The servants at this moment, they, they rush to Abigail. And they say to her, this is what your husband did. And you and they say this to Abigail. You know that nobody can talk to him. Hey if you're a person that nobody can talk to, you're in a lot of trouble. And, and they said, you know how the boss is. You know what he's like. David's men came over here, and they were good to us, and they took care of us, but our master just hurled insults And we're afraid we're in a lot of trouble. So at that moment, Abigail goes right into action. She gets a ton of food. You can read about it. She gets a ton of food. She gets it ready. She gets on her her meal. She gets her people with her, and they're carrying all this food to David to try to intercept David. And it's so cool because they must have been like coming around to Ben at the same time because David had just been saying to his army, boy, it did me a lot of good to do the right thing. And and hang with me for a moment. When you and I get to the place where we're saying it didn't do me any good to do the right thing, we're in a lot of trouble. And David was just saying to his men, it did us a lot of good to do the right thing. And just at that moment, Abigail came around. And she is so sweet. She says to David, I am so sorry for what happened. I take full responsibility. Evidently, Abigail had spent her married life trying to protect this full husband of hers. Every time he got into a scrape, Abigail did what she could to get out of it. And she says to David, I take full responsibility for this. I should have seen your young men when they were coming. Sir, I'm sorry. And here's what she says to David my husband is a jerk. He's called stupid, and he's rightly named. That's what Abigail says to do, and that's true. She said he's got the right name, and I don't see any hope of him changing. But she says two things to David that needs to help every one of us who sometimes get sucked into an angry world with a jerk. Listen to the two things Abigail said to David. It's not until this moment that we know that Abigail knows who David is. She says, ever since you were a little boy, you have tried to do the right thing. You have been fighting God's battles, and God is with you. What is Abigail saying to David? She's saying, you're not Nabal. This is not who you are. This is who my husband is. He's stupid. He may always be that way. But it's not who you are. The problem with getting into a duel with a jerk is that they pull us down to their level. I mean, here's David, man. He's got the sword ready to go. And what she's saying to David is don't let Nabal pull you down to his level. After Abigail looks back in the past, now Abigail looks forward in the future. She says to David, You're God's anointed, you have a wonderful future. Read this when you get home. This is cool. She says, God is going to bless you. You've been fighting God's battles, and God is going to elevate you and and give you great heights. This is what she says. Don't let this be a blemish on your record. She is saying, someday God is just going to make you the greatest man in the world, and you're going to go to sleep at night. And she was saying, David, you're not going to want to lie down on your pillow and remember that you did something that you're ashamed of because some jerk pulled you into his angry world. Guys, I got to tell you, that is advice from heaven. And David realizes and he puts his sword up and he said, thank you very much. We're going back. I got two minutes. You want to hear the end of the story? If I'm talking to anybody here and you feel with anger, do you know it's messing with your body? It is. It is. You know, Nabal, stupid, gets really drunk. It's a party. And the Bible says he parties like a king. And a lot, of, a lot of times, anger and substance abuse go together. So he's just drunk out of his mind. I don't know what his blood alcohol content was, but it was wretched. Because he was drunk for a while. And as he got sober, when he could process information, Abigail went and sat down by his bed and said, Let me tell you what almost happened to you. <laughs> and when she tells him the shock is so great, Nabal has a stroke. And lies paralyzed on his bed for 10 days. And then he dies. Here is a guy who has lived angry all his life. I mean, he pushed people's buttons. He enjoyed it. He enjoyed being a jerk. But all this time, this rage is just eating him up on the inside of him. He has a stroke. He's paralyzed. And he dies. David hears that he dies. You can read this. Um, This is over here in verse... 39. When David hears that Nabal is dead, he gives God thanks. And he thanks God that God dealt with his enemy. And he's thanking God that God kept him from doing anything rash. And he sends messengers to ask Abigail a question. You know what the question is? Will you marry me? (laughs) Joy got married to a good guy on that day. My, my, my concern for me and for all of us is that we won't let jerks pull us into their world. That we won't fight duels. That we won't wind up suffering because we have hot tempers or allow somebody to pull us into trouble. Or that, I, that we won't pass it on to our kids. Because God will take care of your enemies. You're not that person. God has a great destiny for you. And you won't want that blemish on your record. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you've taught us today from this old Bible story. Thank you for Abigail and the wisdom that she had. Lord, may it get into all of our lives. May may you remind us that we don't have to beat our adversaries. We just need to do what's right, and you'll take care of them. Father, for some of us who are angry people, maybe some may be button pushers here today. Lord, I pray that you would let them know that you will forgive anything and that you can absolutely transform us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Still praying with me. In my prayer a moment ago, I indicated that Some of us could be angry people. Some of us can be button pushers. But you don't have to live that way. And most of all, you don't have to die that way. Christ can forgive any sin. When Jesus died on the cross, and those nails were in his hands and feet, the blood that flowed out of his body was a payment for your past sins and your future sins. And the scripture says if you will invite Christ into your life, he will wash your sins away. He'll adopt you into God's family, and he'll turn you into a new person. If you're ready for that today and you say, Mark, I don't understand everything about it, neither do I. I just take God at his word. If you would like to invite Jesus Christ into your life, you can do that. I'm going to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words. You don't have to use my words if you don't wish, but I'm going to pray this prayer slowly. And if you mean it from your heart, God will keep his word. He has said, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So here we go. Jesus, I believe you love me. I believe you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I believe you arose from your grave. I ask you to forgive me, save me, change me, make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that and you meant it, you just made the most important decision in your life. But it happens so quick, you may say, Mark, I don't really understand it. Hey, I've got a packet I want to give you. It won't cost you a penny. There's some DVDs in there and great material to help you know what it truly means to know Christ and follow him. You've got a worship folder when you came in. It's got a picture of a guy pointing a gun at you. Uh, or kind of off to the side a little bit. If you'll take that part of the worship folder, you just need to put your name and address on there. Check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ. There are other boxes you can check if you want to you know, communicate with us. Just attach that. You can drop it in the offering plate or you can drop it in the boxes of the back doors at the bottom of the staircase. If it has your name and address, we'll mail you this this week. If you don't like to wait, you don't have to. Just take the card. Go right back to Guest Services or New Spring Store and say, hey, I prayed with Mark today. Give them the card. They'll give you this, and you can take it home with you today. So excited that you're here. Next weekend, we do another message from the Pack and Heat series called Vendetta, and I'm um, looking forward to that.